0: Cleanliness or purity in industrial products. If today we were looking for qualities generally regarded as good or desirable, then cleanliness might well come high on our list. We are pretty undecided as to what extent we want our surroundings to be happy or sad, crooked or straight, etc. But on the whole, we always want them to be as clean as possible. From many points of view, cleanliness can hardly claim to be a magnificent virtue, On the other hand, we rarely, if ever, permit the unclean to be valued as an aim. We will dearly love products which meet the demands of cleanliness halfway, be they road services, furniture, clothes, crockery or anything else. And wherever we ask for cleanliness in the communal life and work with other people, we are mutually agreeing that this demand is for something self-evidently good. For this reason, cleanliness is a specially good means to come by an understanding about the how and why of our everyday industrial products. When we have considered the question of cleanliness in industrial products, we have occasionally talked about hygiene. Or not, as the case may be, depending on what suited us better. In this case, it is not, perhaps, of particular importance. If, for instance, a piece of furniture were made in such a way that it was easy to dust in use, and we could argue that it was healthier not to have any dust in a room, then such reasoning might be useful at the moment, but it is more likely that the feelings we have against dust have little to do with its healthiness or otherwise. Hygiene is only a side issue in this case. When we clean our windows, we want them to be as shiny as the top as they are at the bottom, It may be the act of cleaning windows in itself unhealthy, but at any rate we all consider it a good thing to do. If the attitude we are today adopting towards cleanliness were to be observed and embraced in a more principled manner in the foundation of our industrial products, then they would readily and quite naturally attain, to a great extent, something generally correct or obviously good. Our endeavours to bring our industrial products to fruition and our search for mutual understanding in those areas suggest that we should necessarily have to have a high respect for cleanliness today, and we certainly do respect it highly. However, if something is more comfortable to us at this moment, then we respect that something else more highly. For example, our furniture upholstery. According to the relationship which we have with cleanliness, We should be able to make the assumption that anyone who is in any way seriously concerned with upholstery would try to manufacture it in such a way that it could be easily stripped off, washed and cleaned. While in the course of thinking about that one arrives at a well-known uncomfortable point which always occurs and it makes it difficult to continue for it does not take us very long to remember that apart from cleanliness there are many other things to consider. In the end we have long ceased to think of the removable and washable cover at all, and when everything has been completed we have a beautiful and comfortable old German oak chair, ox-hide surrounded by brass buttons. As our intentions are so divided, it is not so much a case of which is of the greater importance to us, but of what can be more easily achieved. Just as material cleanliness is important to us in very general terms, so too is the cleanliness or purity of our thoughts and emotions. It would be fitting if we demanded that our everyday products or our industrial products should not only be clean in material terms, but also clean in their entire manner, or even in their form. Perhaps the formal cleanliness of an industrial product is a difficult concept to grasp. It may be extremely difficult to pin down, just as purity of thought and emotion leaves us a lot of elbow room. But ultimately, we know only too well how to differentiate, to a large extent, between the pure and the impure. Shaping the purer form might not always be very easy, but our industrial products would be a lot purer in formal terms if we were only more conscious of the great respect we have for pure form. For example, in the elevation of an unfinished house, one whose masonry and mortar joints are still visible, the upper termination of the opening for a window or a door almost invariably shows the version seen in figure 13, which is a photo of uh, windows and one of them square and the other one is square but with a rounded top, and it has those little bits on top. It- <laughs> It must be first said that here we have a case of utilising a manner of construction which as such is reliable and good, but the pattern of mortar joints that this manner of construction makes on the surface of the wall is very impure, and it is not likely that anyone, insofar as he or she notices such things, does not sense this clear formal impurity as such. It is, however, just as possible to terminate the opening in the wall at the top, according to the method shown in figure 14. That's the square one. Or some horizontal pattern. Today, we could solve the technical task in question without any problems. It should be assumed that here we would wish to value the technical aspect very highly. It would be very difficult to prove which of the two methods of construction was technically the better, given the specific case. Despite that, all of us would prefer the pattern of joints in figure 14, the square one, as the purer image, given the choice, and still, we would find it relatively rarely. This is not a bad example. We can look at any part of our streets, bridges or furniture and only rarely find that the great care has been taken in their formation to produce pure form. In the case of formal cleanliness, the overlapping of different solids should be specially noted. That is, today, the secondary forms which are produced in this way, where multiple figures stand behind one another, where the anterior figures partially obscure the ulterior in such a way as to only permit a few, so to speak, cut off formal parts. To shape individual and composite bodies in such a way that overlapping figures are very pure or so that they always present an image of the deliberate from all points of view, contrary to the undesirable or the willful, is, however, one of the most difficult tasks of all formal design. Thus also, to a large extent, the high standard of a sculpture is determined by the way in which it looks good from all angles." To form industrial products well, with respect to possible overlaps, it is especially difficult, as the environment of the individual bodies is only partially or vaguely controlled by the designer. For example, if we build a detached house, then after a while a new house might appear in the vicinity, over whose formation we have no control, but which is very important in terms of its appearance due to its having been superimposed on our house. Alternatively, individual bodies might frequently change the positions from which the overlaps are determined. For example, the forms made by the various overlaps when a chair stands in front of a table will change when we move the chair. The strange and inevitable, and as such especially indeterminate overlaps, which should be observed with regard to the shaping of industrial products from a special base, to the extent that we keep an eye out for the most neutral familiar forms. For example, while curved and straight lines create impure or noticeably dominant secondary forms when they overlap, the ones to which the overall perimeter invariably belongs in figure 16 have the quality of being unobtrusive and natural. Individually, the overlapping forms in this figure are also not pure, but the affinity of the shapes of the table and the chair do not easily permit the impurity of the overlapping figures to stand out. In this respect, very vivid or broken up individual forms, such as those in figure 17, which I don't know how to describe this. It's like a fluffy, the, all the lines in the chair and the table are fluffy like clouds instead of straight lines or direct, you know, lines, bold lines. Can be especially advantageous because to put it one way, Whenever there is already plenty going on, a little more is not going to make any difference. It is the purer and the more determined things that are always more vulnerable. This is especially true for the shape of roofs, which, after all, are more or less always distinct in their primary lines. For example, in the two houses in figure 18, whilst they are certainly related by basic form, the overlap of the secondary figures F and H produce very impure or unintentional forms. Freestanding roofs are a different chapter altogether, and an especially difficult one. They require quite extraordinarily careful formal development and disposition if the overlaps are to result in some obvious or convincing form. When we place a chair in front of a table, then the resulting overlaps are undoubtedly not of primary importance. As far as this goes, we are quite used to coarseness and will have to always accept it in large measures in our industrial products. But even if we do not criticise the very impure as such, we can still note that we are always amenable to the formally pure whenever we come across it. Greater purity of form has always something salutary for us. We find it, for instance, in a room which contains relatively few items of furniture, which have been placed as far as possible against the wall, leaving the middle of the room free, And this is due to the fact that these items of furniture do not stand behind each other or only do so in a few cases, so the number of possible overlaps has been reduced from the outset and, as a rule, individual images of great formal purity are created. There may be some concern that in pursuit of continual purity we will end up getting rid of everything altogether so that everything will be certain to be quite pure. It is true that one demand for the formal purity of our industrial project is the demand for formal reduction or simplicity, but insofar as we are thinking of such a thing is an ideal way of life we will always find that greater simplicity plays quite an important part. One could say the simple is not always the best, but the best is always simple, but apart from anything we will be less able to come to an agreement on simplicity than on cleanliness. Reflecting on the extent to which our environment should be clean, we should answer almost without hesitation that it should always be as clean as it is at all possible. Contrary to that, we would soon have a host of fundamental reservations against a demand for simplicity. That which we commonly call pure does not necessarily have to be simple. Only the simple favours the pure, that which is pure from all points of view." And therefore a high respect for the latter will probably always result in the simple, that which is simple from all points of view. Conversely, the rich or the manifold is always actually disadvantageous to the pure and has little in common with it. We have a particularly good example of this in the Rococo period, which was very rich in forms. There were many curlicues everywhere. And with them, the numerous powdered wigs and tails and everywhere makeup and hooped dresses and volants, a profusion of lace and in every portrait can be seen a little long haired dog in a lady's lap. The wash basins were also said to have been very small and not even the king is said to have owned a bath. The charms of this world need no special mention. They are quite evident, but just as we are what we happen to be today, We no longer have anything to do with it, other than occasionally enjoying thinking about it from a distance. Our ideals are taking us on a completely different path. Occasionally it seems that simplicity is related to poverty. In practical terms, these do not yet have anything in common with each other. Our simplicity can be just as much a greater richness as our diversity can be the greatest poverty.